Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew White Dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is PTA's So White with Dr. Brittany Murray. Ooh, shout out to April Rain for the inspiration from hashtag Oscar So White. Yes. And we are talking about PTAs. Like it's something that comes up all the time. People want to talk about the PTA, the PTA, the PTA, and we're finally digging in. And you know, we have been excited about sharing this episode with folks forever. Yeah. Um, Brittany was an incredible guest. I know I'm really lucky in this <laughs> instance because once we knew that we were able to book Brittany for the podcast, I did the first thing I could because she is in my home state and we met up for lunch and Yay. it was fantastic and we connected. And so you'll hear in this conversation that we already are vibing on yeah. BFF level and I miss <laughs> sure. you, Brittany, if you're listening and I need to see you soon. For sure. Yes, that's what this podcast is all about, is growing your social circle, Val. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have collected many friends (laughs) from here. Absolutely, yeah. Her research is totally relevant to integrated schools as an organization towards the broader question of inequity in education and in society at large. And so really excited to share this conversation. I pushed my thinking in all sorts of new ways. And since we had the conversation, which was a while ago now, it has been, been sitting around with me. So I'm glad we finally get to share it. I know. And I think I always thought that joining the PTA was the answer to parent engagement and being involved with my kids' schooling. And her research, you know, started to make me question if that was the way to do it, right? If I was adding to the problem instead of being part of the solution. So I've been thinking about that for a while. And, you know, I'm I'm ready to go rogue and create my own <laughs> caregiver organizations that explicitly talk about the things that we are trying to push here at Integrated Schools versus some of what PTAs have been known for. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like the, the vision of what does it mean to be an engaged parent is so often tied to PTA. And I think that her research really highlights some of the ways that PTA has been used and probably has continues to be used as as really a way to hoard resources. Mm. And so the the representation problem that I know the number of mm. conversations that I've heard of people who are like, we're trying to mm. become more representative in our PTA, but we're not having much success. That is mm-hmm. by far the majority of the conversations that I have about PTA. And so it's interesting to hear her research on kind of the ways that both we we got here, you know, the kind of the organization started, how mm. it became this way, and then, you know, what the impacts of that are now on on the kids in the school. So, you know, people might feel a little called in, called out. <laughs> <laughs> by some things that Brittany brings up in this episode because of what we've been led to believe about the function of PTAs and how we show up as parents. Um, what are your thoughts about that as a white dad from Denver? <laughs> yeah, there's certainly moments where where I felt implicated in a lot of what mm. she was saying. And so, yeah, I would encourage listeners to to br- breathe deep, to yeah. think about how is this actually relevant to to your life. And, you know, I do think there, there are ways in which she she is talking broadly about research and, and the inclination to sort of say, well, like, not me, you know, mm. hashtag not all PTAs. I feel that inclination. Yeah. And I, I think that's fair. And I think whenever we are given an opportunity for our thinking to be pushed or for us to hold up a reflection and say, like, am I operating in this way that doesn't align with my stated values? And it's okay to pause and think about that and and figure out how we can continue to evolve, right? So I believe wholeheartedly everyone is doing their best in this moment. And each of these conversations offers us an opportunity to to do better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let's listen. All right. Let's check it out. 
Hello, I am Dr. Brittany Murray. I am an assistant professor of educational studies and political science at Davidson College, a small suburb outside of Charlotte and, and very closely in proximity to Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, which is so relevant to uh, what you all talk about here. So yeah. Yeah. thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan. That's Yay. Great. And you know, another black bomb from North Carolina. Woo-hoo. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. I, I'm excited to represent. So That's what's up. That's yeah. Um, Tell us a bit about your research. You've covered a lot of ground, but what's the kind of thread that unifies it in your mind? Yeah, it is highly interdisciplinary, but I do think at the core, my work is about race, families, and school inequality. So I think about inequality and trust that families have for schools, right? I think about inequality in relationships between families and schools, between families and teachers, inequality in access to resources and opportunities, right? Who gets access uh, to even the information about what they should be doing, right? And I think the direction that a lot of my work has taken, inequality in access to power and influence in schools. Mm. Um, Those things are just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Why? Why do you care about that? What... What in your past led you to to focus on that? Oh, my goodness. I am from North Carolina, right? So I'm one of the few faculty members who are lucky enough to get a tenure track job pretty close to home. Right. I'm from a small town called Pinehurst, North Carolina. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, two times alum. You know, being from Pinehurst, I was intimately familiar and curious about residential segregation. I I don't know if you know much about Pinehurst. It's a golf community. The U.S. Open travels there, like lots of money around resorts and golfing, that kind of thing, right? Country club. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's not the part of Pinehurst that I was from, right? right? Like I'm from a town called Monroe Town. And for uh, a long time, and I don't know if it's still that way, but they would not annex it as a part of Pinehurst. And so it was an unincorporated space where, you know, all the black folks there. So, you know, we were excluded from a lot of services and also like excluded from being able to participate politically. Right. So I've always been really interested about how where you're from, you know, shapes what you have access to and because I was in a very poor neighborhood in a wealthy community, I, I had access to great schools, but it often also meant that they were predominantly white schools, right? Mm-hmm. And the people of color in those schools were poor. You know, it was very little in between, right? You're black and you're poor, you're white and you're rich. And so my mom was the first example for me of the challenges of parenting in that space. You know, like my mom had to fight for every inch that I made it in the school system. She would always say, like, I have to stay on these schools. Mm. So they'll treat my baby right. You know, she advocated for me in order to get into like advanced course taking, to take like the gifted test. Like all of that was a fight. And, you know... She wasn't your traditional PTA mom, right? Like, she, I would call her a very highly involved parent. She's doing everything at home. She's working two jobs. She's going back to nursing school. But she's not running the bake sale. Exactly. Right. She's not organizing the events, even though she showed up at everything I was at, right? Like, she made time. Like, she uh, stayed up for hours with me after she would pull a double shift, right? Making sure, like, I had a fantastic project to turn in, right? Mm-hmm. And providing the structure that I needed to be successful, learning how to advocate for myself, you know, making sure that I knew the importance of education. She wasn't besties with anybody at the school, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the type of involvement my mom engaged in is not the type that shines to mm-hmm. educators, right? Mm. That kind of engagement also doesn't really shine in the research literature either, right? Mm. Like we have pretty uh, narrow, I would say, definitions of of what parent involvement is. Mm. 
you know, that was really instructive for me in terms of the challenges it means of being a racial minority in a, in a dominant community. And now you find yourself in a really sort of similar environment. I'm guessing I'm yeah. guessing that, you know, you sort of your past experience has some impact on on why you do the research that you do. Um, I, you know, my past and my present, really. Right. Like there's a reason why I came to it. There's a reason why I stay in it. You know, I'm a black mother scholar. Right. Like mm-hmm. I have kids in the school system and it's tough. Everything that I research affects how I parent, right? Mm. Everything that I'm experiencing in these schools is shaping what I even think about my work and my research. I see how my kids are affected, right? I, I witness them being left out of opportunities for learning. I see them being overdisciplined, right? I have mm. three Black boys, one Black girl, right? And I see m- myself as being left out of the PTA feeling Mm. I can't even penetrate the circle of white moms outside on the playground talking about Mm. ways to advantage their their kids, right? You know, Davidson is a small town, right? I am a professor here in this town, and as much capital as I have as a professor, as a Black woman, as a Black parent, I'm still left out. I still Mm. feel powerless, right? That informs a lot of why I stay in it. Yeah, that that must be hard. It, It shows the need for a community right? Mm-hmm. That you're desperately seeking to join and then right. feeling out of place in that. Yep. That's tough. Well, that paints a, a very full and colorful picture of all the things that have kind of made their way into your research. And you've ended up doing a lot with all those experiences. You know, we could have six different episodes about all of the various things that you've studied because they all feel so relevant, but yeah. kind of yeah. narrowing in on on this like, you know, vision of parent engagement and how parents are involved in school. And like you talked about the the literature, but also broadly, culturally, the ways we think about what it means to be an involved parent are pretty narrow. Mm -hmm. But can you sort of lay out what what does that look like in the kind of formal structures, informal structures, kind of how do you think about that, that role of parents and why it's important? Yeah, I think for a long time, we've taken parent involvement as just a universal good, right? Like, we need parents in schools, you know, if you're not here, you're doing something wrong. And if you are here, we need more like you. We want to suck you dry, right? Like we want all of your time. And I think that, re- you know, research supports that idea in a lot of ways. You know, we see a lot of research on parent involvement that suggests, you know, these things are improving graduation rates, achievement scores. So there's a, a lot of support for it. But I think uh, the the findings are not very consistent around that, right? Like, so what are the particular strategies that actually lead to improved student outcomes, right? Is that actually improving across the board? Mm. So, you know, there's some research that says, well, actually, it benefits you more if you're from a middle-class family. Mm. That kind of parent involvement is what improves Mm. your outcomes, right? Right. So why doesn't the involvement of poor or minority families pay off in the same ways? Mm. (laughs) What's the answer? (laughs) That's what we're trying to tease through. Okay. As of recently, Dr. Jessica Calarco, Dr. Annette LaRoe, these researchers that have problematized parent involvement, right? Trying to understand a little bit more about the dark side of parent involvement, mm. right? Like, so you can look at it as like the helicopter parenting, which sometimes doesn't improve, but actually can hurt students, right? <laughs> right? In terms of their self-sufficiency, in terms of their mental health, all of that. So like, you know, we don't have a good grasp on what parent involvement strategies lead to what outcomes mm. for which populations of people and even mm. at what age, right? So there's so many questions and that the literature does not agree on. 
it's really interesting to hear you say that, that, that like we're kind of in the early phases of this research and there's so much we don't know because Mm -hmm. that's not how we talk about this, right? Like there are, like there are cultural norms and education policy built on this idea Mm. that parent involvement in the really narrow way that we define it is unquestionably good. Mm -hmm. How, How did that come to be? Right. They've taken a lot of the early work about parent school partnerships and Dr. Joyce Epstein's work and like embedded that in policy. Mm-hmm. We see that in Title One, where, you know, there's a requirement that you fund parent groups or parent involvement, at least a portion of your school budget when you're receiving Title One funds. Right. So it's a part of the narrative around what makes good schools. But it doesn't take long. Like you just take peel back a few layers to kind of understand, well, Hmm. You know, who is who is parent involvement paying off for? Right. We mentioned that it's paying off for affluent parents, for white families. But a lot of the research that we've done so far has looked at parent involvement as an individual level phenomenon. Right. Like I get involved for my kid. I advocate for my kid. I show up to my kids, parent teacher conferences and hasn't paid a lot of attention to the fact that parents aren't just coming in the school and saying, I want Johnny to do better, but they're coming in the school and working together and strategizing, right? And building interest groups in schools, right? To secure policy changes that will mm. work for their families, right? So, you know, how, how do I, how does our conception of parent involvement change when we shift from thinking about it individually to collectively, mm. right? To think about these are interest groups, of people that are mobilized, Mm. (laughs) you know, to secure resources, right? And like a little mini democracy. Right. And you have representation problems there, right? Right. You are blowing Um, my mind right now. (laughs) Like, for real. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the, like, the promise and the peril, right? Because, like, on the one hand, like, you say that and and there's a vision of that that is like, yes, this is what we need. We need parents who know their kids to be politically active, to be able to, you know, organize and hold power and and draw resources and advocate on behalf of their kids. And Mm -hmm. and so there's this real promise in it. And then there's the peril, which is like, who does that? How are the yep. systems to set up to allow and, and, and who is able to kind of use that system to their advantage? Because at the moment, that system is mostly used by white moms. Dang. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and, you know, schools are a place where we're supposed to be teaching students about democratic processes, mm-hmm. right? Like this is the first place where you learn how to be a citizen in a community. And in fact, when I've talked to parents and I ask them, why did you get involved in the PTA? Because I want to be an example for my child of Mm. what they should aspire to as an adult, of how to be a a productive citizen, right? So really the first kind of uh, associational life that kids see is run by white stay-at-home moms, right? Oh my gosh. Mm. Who are advocating, uh, (laughs) you know, to reference Dr. Lynn Posey Maddox's work and Dr. Maya Cucciaro's work. Like they're advocating for resources and opportunities that would directly benefit their own children, right? And showing this blind eye to the diverse needs across a school community and creating policies that would benefit themselves, right? Like, what are we teaching our young people here (laughs) when it comes to who's involved uh, in in, uh, our democratic processes, right? And I think we have, there's opportunity to do work in that area, right? (laughs) This seems like a good place to just take get a, just a little understanding about the history of these okay. parental organizations. So what do you know about it? What can you share with us about why these were formed? Yeah. Um, you know, PTAs have a long history, right? Before women could even participate in our democratic society, right? Before we could vote, women were joining civic associations. And Dr. Mm-hmm. Christine Weishner could talk about this much better than I could. But to reference some of her work, what we now know as the PTA was formed late 19th century and started advocating for things like school immunization policy, school lunch, you know, taking a kind of a national level view. 
But at this point, schools are segregated, right? Like, right. right. <laughs> so we are around like Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal, right? And so they're advocating for white schools, right. you know, at, at this era. There was another association, right? The, a, a parallel association, if you will, National Congress of Colored Parents and Teachers that were working in the black schools, right? So Brown v. Board of Education and, you know, all of the resistance to desegregation also happened among PTAs, right? So... As you desegregate schools, there's dual organizations within the school. What do you do? Mm. The same way that you see black teachers and black principals lose their jobs, black PTAs also lost their power. They were taken over by white women, right? Mm. So very storied history there with PTAs. But I think the thing to keep in mind is that black parents lost their source of power in schools, right? They lost a platform to organize. Right. And that thing now as the PTA is most commonly led by white women, stay-at-home moms, often affluent, right? That have the time and the resources to be able to carry out these agendas, right? And I know you also talk about Dr. McCray's work, Mothers of the Master Resistance, right? And how white teachers and now white parents add them in the mix, doing that daily labor of like maintaining a white supremacy within the school building, right? right? And part of that being carried out within the PTA organizations is disheartening, frustrating, <laughs> infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about the, the kind of multiple levels of educating our kids. The, you know, that like we're creating systems that allow resource hoarding by already privileged parents, largely white parents, to, you know, advocate to get more things for our own kids, which mm-hmm. gives them advantages, but also is like teaching them that this is the way that we engage in Civil society, this is the way that we engage in democracy. What you think of when you think of a a, a good, engaged, involved parent is somebody who's a part of the PTA without ever having to think about race, ever having to think about kind of the ways that you are part of this tending the garden of white supremacy that that Dr. McRae talks about. It's Mm -hmm. all just it's all baked in there. Like the path of least resistance is to to keep replicating these things. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, um, one thing, too, just to kind of give you a little bit more of the landscape, I, we've talked about like this decline of civil society over the years, right? Dr. Putnam's work, right? Bowling alone. We don't see bowling leagues anymore. We don't see this kind of associational life that was really prevalent in the uh, 20th century, right? So they've uh, done this work to kind of track the decline of civic associations over time. And the PTA was a big part of that work, kind of examining the, the decline in membership over the PTA. Mm. But some of my work has suggested that you know, actual PTA units are still pretty prevalent across schools. But that decline in membership suggests that there are fewer people involved in these, right? And so you have a handful of people at these schools that are making a lot of big decisions, right? right. Yeah. These are typically tight-knit <laughs> white stay-at-home moms, right? So less representative, right? Like power being much more concentrated amongst fewer people. That, that's really interesting, right? So the, like, mm-hmm. the, the total number of people involved in things like PTA has gone down, but like, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of in general, folks aren't engaging in civic organizations like they used to, but the total number of actual PTAs hasn't gone down as much. And so yes. you end up with the kind of the, the same vehicles of parent engagement, but mm-hmm. fewer and less representative people participating in these structures. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and what interestingly, uh, they're more concentrated in racially diverse schools. So we see this relationship between racial diversity and the likelihood for a school to have a PTA. Really? Yeah. What's, Isn't that interesting? That, that is, is interesting. Interesting. Say more about like what's what's the mm-hmm. what's the current theory on why yeah. that is? Whew. I've spent so much time thinking about this. Um, 
You know, I think there's two questions here because you might, one might think, right, that these organizations are forming in racially diverse environments because like in society, you have different constituencies in the schools and you have to be able to have this process or these platforms to be able to negotiate who gets what, right? Like we need Mm -hmm. some kind of formal organization uh, so that people can voice concerns so that we can, you know, make these really fair decisions, right, about how resources are allocated. That's the more optimistic view, I think. They're like, we need a town square. That this is like exactly. the, the school version of a town square so that we can like hash out what do we do, what's important, what do we care about. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's, that's, I think that's one theory. Um, interestingly, I find evidence that th- there's a little less optimistic, right? Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> a little more racist. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Right. We got it. We know what's up. Uh, Yeah. So I actually do a study where I try to understand that relationship uh, between racially diverse schools and the presence of PTA. So I actually leverage the timing of the lifting of court order desegregations to see is this policy lever kind of shaping what these organizations then do. And so what I find in my data is that when uh, these desegregation orders are lifted and there's no formal mandate to keep our schools integrated, right? We actually see PTAs dissolve after that, wow. suggesting that the PTAs are actually more likely to exist in places that are under active desegregation orders, right? Implying that that first theory may not be mm. um, quite accurate, right? In fact, these could be places where white parents mobilize in the face of increasing racial threat or racial competition, right? Mm. So what happens when the private school isn't affordable anymore and you're faced with looking at your neighborhood school that's predominantly black and has a bad reputation, right? I'll go and I'll start a PTA. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that's a public elementary school phenomenon where white parents consolidate power in the face of racial diversity, racial competition, or mm. over resources, right? And they mobilize. And, and it could be right to, to maintain mm. uh, this power when resources could be allocated differently, right? And uh, all without thinking that that's what they're doing, without even having to acknowledge that that's like a piece of, of what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we're the most valued <laughs> parents at this school, mm. right? Now principals want to please us, right? And depend on us to improve their score ratings, right? Mm-hmm. To uh, be able to advocate at the district level to bring needed resources mm-hmm. to the school, right? To fundraise and, and hire additional teachers, hire additional equipment, right? Now, all of a sudden, there's a new hierarchy within the school mm-hmm. where the types of involvement that white middle-class parents perform are much more valued than the ways that folks that have been there, right? <laughs> Black parents, mm-hmm. working-class parents, right? Have, have been doing the whole time. Can you, say, can you say a little bit about the damage that that does? I can imagine somebody mm-hmm. listening and being like, yeah, that sounds great. There's going to be more money mm-hmm. in the school. There's going to be better test scores. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, what's the downside of that? The downside of it, there's a lot of downsides. Yeah. Just the more tangible downsides are that, well, now resources are not being spread across schools evenly, right? So yes, you're raising more money, but where is that money going, mm-hmm. right? My research finds that affluent students do better in schools with a PTA than poor students. Mm. So wow. <laughs> that is you know, evidence mm. for this opportunity hoarding process. Yeah. We have a paper where we looked at North Carolina data, you know, control for prior achievement, right? And looked at students when they moved from a school without a PTA to a PTA and observed that rich students perform better in reading when moving to a a school with a PTA than do poor students, right? Supporting this opportunity hoarding idea that these resources 
whether they be financial, whether they be relational, whatever the good is that you derive from these organizations is not reaching everybody, right? I think that's more the tangible resource-based problem with it. But the other is that, you know, valuing one type of involvement in, in the ways that you can see and feel by necessity makes you devalue the ways that other parents get involved, the ways they try to support, right? Um, the ways that your mom got involved. Exactly. Right? Yep. Exactly. Um, and there's also, uh, Jessica Larco talks about the privilege dependence that happens, right? Where the principals are now trying to make sure we keep these parents happy because we yes. want them to stay in our schools. We don't want them to opt out to the private schools. And so now we're catering to these families at the expense of other families. Dr. Victor Ray talks about racialized organizations and you know how even just the presence of these organizations can serve to reinforce these stereotypes that we have in our heads, right? Mm-hmm. So educators assume the worst of Black families oftentimes. Right. They assume they're not involved. They assume they don't care, right? If they're not showing up at the PTA meetings, if they're not showing up at lunchtime to make copies, you know, now there's these embedded assumptions about why they're not there rather mm-hmm. than the norm being both parents having to work. Now you've shifted the expectation around parents engaging in the ways that white middle-class parents engage. And that's just not possible. It's not possible for me, right. you know, and that's what I've dealt with over the last two years, like, wow, it is a lot of pressure to feel like I'm supposed to, you know, be mm-hmm. in all these, I pressure. can't do it. I have to work, you know, love my kids dearly. I make sure they eat in the mornings, right. <laughs> you know, right. I, I sometimes iron their clothes. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, you are a better parent than me. <laughs> They're wearing their clothes. I feel like that's a win. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for sure. I also think about the, the, the kind of generational harm. Mm-hmm. If, if you create that environment, that's the school that you go through. What What is your relationship to school as an institution when you get ready to bring your own kids into the school environment? It's not just the impact on the kid in the moment. You're setting them up to have a certain relationship with school that, that is then going to color the way that they end up in interacting with school when they're parents. Absolutely. And I think there's inequality in the way that teachers deal with families, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers often feel uh, submissive to white affluent parents, right? A little bit more subordinate and deferential, but they feel power over poor and mm-hmm. non-dominant families, right? Like they feel that they're the authority figure, that they're in charge, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've talked with a, with black parents who have been banned from the school because of the ways that they have engaged with the school. Mm-hmm. And that's traumatic, that you can't come to the school that your child attends. That's very dramatic. You know, and and this is shaping the relationships of cultures between these families and these schools. Like I, it's confrontational. It is conflict. We're not listening to each other. We don't hear each other. We don't like each other. Right. It's not, there's no trust. Right. Right. One of the, like the way, the ways that, that particularly white parents, but kind of in general, the ways these parent organizations gatherings of parents operate is through this idea of social capital. And I wonder if you can just tell us, like, what is social capital, at least in the way that you think about it with regards to to parent involvement? Yeah, I think about social capital as any type of resource, whether it be social, financial, material, psychological, any kind of resource that you derive from a relationship, right? And the ways that you can mobilize relationships to your Mm -hmm. advantage, And I think that there's different utility derived from different types of relationships. There's a famous Granovetter paper about the strength of weak ties, right? Where you would think that the most beneficial relationships would be like the close-knit, familial, bonded 
relationships, right? Where, you know, we know each other, we're family, we go to the same church, but actually you derive a lot of benefit from these weaker ties that are across the social distance because that's how you find out about things you don't know. So uh-huh. that's where you go to to get this new information <laughs> uh-huh. about a job opportunity, right? Or about uh-huh. a scholarship opportunity, right? These weak ties, like our, you know, we're just meeting each other, right, Andrew? Like, right. but this is very advantageous for both of us, right? right. Like, so there's this weak yeah. relationship that we're making here that's arguably just as valuable as a more close-knit, bonded relationship with a family member that might support me in a time of need, right? right. That might loan me money because they know me so well. This is that that difference between, I think, what you refer to as bonding mm-hmm. versus bridging social capital, right? That the bonding capital right. is what you get with those close-knit relationships, but that bridging is what you get across social distance. People who are maybe more yep. of an acquaintance who are, you know, less like you socially. And it's not like one of those is, is necessarily better than the other. Right. There's, there's different types of benefit you get from different types of relationships. And I think it's really interesting to apply that to schools and the kinds of relationships that we have between families and between Mm. families and schools. And so one of the things that we examine is that, well, what kinds of relationships are more closely linked with these opportunity hoarding processes that we see? And what we did find is that, you know, in places where that bonding social capital is dominant, where you see that families are kind of in this membership club, it's easier to exclude people who are not in it, right? It's the mm-hmm. circled up on the playground phenomenon. Everybody's circled up. And so we don't even see people Correct. that are not a part of that circle, right? right? Correct. And if you're on the outside of it, you know, you can forget it, right? There, there's It's yeah. hard to tap into the, like these bonds are tight and strong mm-hmm. and impenetrable in a way. And so we see we see those types of relationships. Those can drive a lot of the like parent involvement in schools. The idea of PTAs, certainly at white wealthy schools, often like the image, certainly the image that comes to my mind is a really close knit, tightly bonded group of parents who are advocating for their kids. The click, um, yes, that that there's and there's there's it. I think it drives a lot of engagement in the school. It drives a lot of connection to the school for those people who are on the inside. Absolutely. Right. And they're not just bonded among each other. Right. They're closely bonded with the principal. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So they have the principal's ear. Teachers (laughs) are like, Mm -hmm. come over after school. Right. That kind of thing uh, where there's this insider knowledge, this insider information, you know, knowing how to navigate school. School Mm -hmm. is embedded in that. Right. And not everybody has access to that. I think that's why I may have not ever been threatened by those groups because I did have insider knowledge. Like, Mm. you know. I had the superintendent's cell phone number. Mm. So Mm -hmm. there was no need for me to feel threatened by that because I was already on the inside and they probably saw me as like that social capital was helpful to them Mm -hmm. because I had direct access to a lot of people that they didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of um, reminds me of uh, Annette LaRoe. She has a paper about how parents use social capital and social ties to address issues in the school and middle class parents are much more likely to work collectively to address problems, right? And, yeah. you know, I imagine these bonded groups, you know, they're more likely to go above the principal's head and go mm-hmm. to the district, right, right? Mm-hmm. and make a lot of noise about things, whereas working class families are much more likely to respond individually to problems. Right. And so who's going to listen right. to you when you're just showing up and right. you're one person? Right. 
you know. And so now you have both the social capital that comes from a collective rather than an individual. Plus it's coming from the more resourced white folks who are going to be listened to more. I mean, you get that exact same group of black folks together. They're not going to be listened to at the district level in the same way. So not only do you have like collective power, but you also have it in the form that is more likely to be listened to and to be heard. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So talk about bridging capital. Because yeah, I feel like this is the so, maybe maybe where we f- try to find some some. Hope. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I think you know you would think that um, bridging capital is the key, right? Oh, we need to include everybody. We need to reach out to everybody. But a lot of like these superficial relationships don't go anywhere either, right? Mm-hmm. So schools can do a ton of outreach to get information to families that are typically on the margins. But that doesn't necessarily bring them together in any way. In fact, it's a lot of work, right? Right. And what we see in this paper is that it just doesn't pay off in the ways that you would think in the absence of the bonding social capital that needs to be there as well. What does a school look like that has all the bridging capital but no bonding capital? Like what is how does that actually play out in real life? So I think when when you're in uh, really diverse spaces, right, where you have people speaking different languages, you have kids coming from all different neighborhoods in the school. I think um, principals take the approach that I, I, I can be equitable by making sure there's something for everyone, right, and translating things to get it to everybody, right? right. But oftentimes, that communication is a one-way street, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the school who holding all the power and disseminating mm-hmm. information, right? Or it is the PTA that holds all the power and in some ways a paternalistic kind of way, right? Mm. What individuals and what people need. And to think about Dr. Anne Ishimaro's work, right? There's not this collaboration, right? Like there, it's, it's not really leveled power dynamics, right? It is a one-way thing where the, the places with the power are kind of deciding what's useful. Right? Yeah, for sure. And so we we saw issues popping up there, too, because families didn't know each other and couldn't connect with each other's needs, right? So you have a PTA, for example, they think they're doing their best to outreach, but they're not getting the participation that they think they want. They're like, well, you know, we're having performances, we're offering mm-hmm. food, we're offering childcare, but we still just are not getting a lot of attendance. You know, people mm-hmm. don't care. And they're frustrated, tired, overworked, you know. And so nothing's happening. I think that resonates with a lot of PTA leaders mm-hmm. across the country who want to be doing this better, but are frustrated with all the work falling on a few people, right? right. Um, not getting the engagement they want to see. I think that it d- characterizes a lot of the schools that are employing that bridging social capital. We're trying to reach everybody. but Without the bonding. Without the bonding. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Without engaging people in more meaningful ways. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about, about uh, trust? I feel like like in, in reading one of your papers here. I, I trust, circled trust on my paper. Trust so. was like I a, did a, too. A big piece of that Yeah. The lack of, if you don't have those the bonding social capital, it's hard to have trust. <laughs> Exactly. I, I think that without really knowing people, what's the point of mm. coming and showing up? That's what we heard a lot of, right? Like these people are just going to do what they want to do anyway. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if I'm there or not. Why would I show up at this for the same group of people to make all decisions and just let me know what's going on? I've actually been doing uh, some more interviews with, with organizations in North Carolina and learning that a lot of the decision making making in PTAs happens via text thread among like five people. Right. <laughs> you know, like this is not a we're going to make decisions at our general body meeting. Like that's not usually what happens at general. Like general body meetings are like, we're going to tell you what yeah. we decide right. and, and, you know, be thankful to us that we're taking on the work of the school, Correct. which you don't have time to do. Right. 
And um, that's not really effective for, you know, for people, it, you know, it, it's the folks that are t that are bonded, right, that are in that board that are actually making all the decisions. So, you know, there's just not a ton of trust that even when I show up, I will have a voice, right? There's not a ton of trust that if I show up and say something that people will hear me right. and take my concerns seriously. So we need both in schools. That paper right. kind of supports that the schools that do both well um, are really where you see uh, resource and opportunities and information being distributed the most um, broadly, right? right? The most equitably, right? And I think that requires principals and school leaders and PTAs to be really intentional about what they're doing to build those kind of relationships. Like that yeah. doesn't happen by accident. Right. You know, schools that we saw that were doing this really well were intentional about providing opportunities for families across a social distance to get to know each other, right? Mm -hmm structuring activities, right, that weren't just at the school all the time, you know, like going into yeah. <laughs> different neighborhoods and like bringing the events to you, right, and giving parents the opportunity to, to authentically get to know who else was at the school. One of the things I noticed in, in your case study, Oakdale, it's kind mm -hmm. of like high bond, high bridge environment. Mm -hmm. There There was a lot of intentionality. There was a lot of, you know, like really kind of explicit talk about things like race. And then it seems at least like there was also some kind of affinity space work as well. Exactly. It was like a black yeah. parent organization. Can you talk mm -hmm. about kind of like, like the, the importance of that? Yeah. And we talked a, a few moments ago about the history of PTAs and how black parents were essentially pushed out and silenced for the predominantly white PTA to come into desegregated school spaces. And so I've been able to observe a, a parent organization actually in Durham, North Carolina, where black mothers are coming together as almost like an alternative for the PTA, right? And it's called Parents of African-American Children. And they are working to help direct PTA resources to students that wouldn't necessarily be recipients of that kind of thing, right? It is an approach that uh, allows more people access to what's going on and engages families a little bit differently than the, the regular PTA would and does oftentimes, right? Providing that platform for families to get to know each other within and between groups is really central uh, to building both forms of capital. I've talked to families that said they can go into a pack where parents of African-American children meeting and talk about things that they couldn't talk about at the PTA meeting, right? Like it felt like a safe space. Right. And also they go into the PTA meetings as a group, right? right? And they feel supported now when they have something to say where they feel like they have people that are there that are going to back them up. So it's not just you going out a limb in a space where you're the one and only one feeling this way, but you actually, you know, we talked about earlier, you actually have more of a civil society going on, right, in schools. Mm -hmm. Like you, you're getting mm -hmm. closer to some of these democratic processes when people are able to uh, collectively organize in not just one venue, right? I have a question. I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. That group, is it um, diverse in terms of class as well? Ooh, I think that that's one place where they have struggled is to yeah. really reach across class lines. W one thing I will say is that their approach is that it doesn't matter if working class parents don't have the time to show up because they see themselves as a village for all children, right? And so mm, they're it. literally built on the idea that involvement doesn't look one way, right? Whereas PTA, you know, you're kind of required to show up, required to bring this, required to organize this. Um, PAC is like, who has the time? And we organize around all students, regardless of whether or not your parent has the time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 
that's a shift right there in mm-hmm. thinking beyond just my own kid here. Yeah. Right. So that's literally part of their mission is like to stand in the gap for families that who cannot be up here to hold school leaders accountable to meeting their kids' needs. And so what happens when we take that shift of, you know, I'm up here to support my kid versus I'm up here to look out for these kids. Yeah. Both of my kids are going to new schools. You're just giving me lots to think about in terms Mm -hmm. of how I want to show up. And I was wondering like, okay, I do have certainly some of the time that some other parents may not, how do I build, how do I bond, you know, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. create these trusting relationships so that they do trust me to go and stand up for all of their kids. Cause I don't, I wouldn't necessarily know all of their kids' experiences. Right. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's just giving me a lot to kind of think about. You know, I'm hearing you say that and I'm thinking one, one thing that's interesting is that parents, uh, especially parents on the margin, I don't know, are always aware of how their experiences are connected, right? So one of the things that PAC does is to talk about the achievement gap in the school district, right? Like, let's make you aware of the history of systematic inequality and, like, the fact that your child got suspended is not just because of your child, actually, but, like, Black kids are being disproportionately (laughs) suspended in our school. Like, this is happening here, right? It's not just your kid that's struggling to learn how to read. There's an achievement gap present, right? And so what does it mean um, when we mobilize Black parents around this mistreatment of their children? And Because it's not just an individual phenomenon, Right. right? And so that uh, awareness around what can the school be doing differently to address and focus and prioritize these issues rather than just the fundraising, right? That the PTA focuses on, right? There are real issues here and and we need Mm -hmm. to grapple with it. And we need to make sure that parents know how their families are being uh, affected by this. You know, a part of the way that I see my job is to educate people about the inequalities (laughs) built into the school system. And I, I think we take it for granted that things have to be this way and that um, they and, and they don't. Right. And so organizing black parents um, around these issues, I think, is, is really important work. That feels hopeful. That's yeah. For <laughs> our, our white privileged audience. I, I know so many people who feel like PTA is a deeply problematic enterprise. Yeah. And I think we have highlighted a number of the ways that that is true here. And it is still present in so many schools in so many places. Mm-hmm. So if you're showing up in a new school, particularly if you're entering a largely black and brown school as a mm-hmm. white parent, you know, what does it look like to to participate, to not participate? Like where is how do you kind of lean on this idea of bridging and and bonding yeah. and social capital, recognizing the kind of unearned privilege that you show up with? Like what would you ask parents to at least be thinking about, if not yeah. explicitly do? And let me say this, too, that, you know, that call to action is big, right? Like that, yeah. that takes a lot of space in your life to think about organizing and, and advocating. So continue taking care of your children <laughs> in the way that works for you and is best for your family. You know, and when you prioritize yourself and your own mental health, like that's the that's all we can do. But I do think that for parents that do take it on themselves to get involved. So the, the PTA moms that you're kind of talking to right now, the folks that have the time, the space, the resources, I think it's important to reflect on who's in your inner circle and who you're talking to and who's a part of the, these decision making processes with you. Right. And do they reinforce your ideas or do they challenge? 
your ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is this about you saying that you know what's best for a school community? Or is this about you listening and working with people in the school community to chart a path forward and decide uh, what goes best? So I think building on that bridging and bonding work that parents specifically that are involved in these organizations can think about how do we not just create this one-way street with us giving information and like barking orders at people of what to do, but like how do we authentically build community, right? What does it look like? What, what, do, what do fellowship opportunities look like? Not just in school, but like in people's communities, right? Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean to be a model for students for how to engage democratically, right? <laughs> when there are different people with different needs and different levels of power, like how, do, how can we be an example really for what democracy in a diverse society should look like, right? Mm -hmm. So meet people, reach out, (laughs) you know, talk to people that are not uh, uh, the same as you, right? If you're in that circle of parents on the playground, like open up, right? Right. Invite somebody in that's different or talk to somebody that's different, right? So humanize those around you and, you know, build community where possible. And I think that school leaders and policymakers have much more of a responsibility right. here, right? Like a lot of reason that we see the PTA activity the way that it is is because schools are underfunded, right? right. So right. returning to parents for help because we don't have enough, mm-hmm. you Girl, know, you- stay. <laughs> so we're creating this new hierarchy of parents because of the, oh you know, we, we're relying on parents of means who can turn their public school into a private school, essentially, right, right? for their own kids. And so, you know, one of the strategies that are out there right now, like we've seen the redistribution efforts, right, in different places like Portland, New York, that that comes with its own problems as well, right? Like it comes with a lot of animosity. It comes with a lot of paternalism, right? If you're redistributing your PTA dollars, then you're also probably telling a different organization how they should spend their money and what they should do, right? And not valuing their culture and what they want to do. And and I think that redistribution takes the emphasis off schools not being adequately funded in general, Mm -hmm. right? And we should not have to rely so heavily on this external fundraising mechanism that can fuel so many hierarchies among families and schools. On the other hand, school leaders, I think, can create... routines in schools that send that message and also uh, encourage families to uh, get to know each other. I, I love uh, taking moments to reimagine schools in, in, in ways that, um, you know, families can be authentically engaged with each other and supportive of each other and commit to their stu- their kids and all the kids in the building, the right? Kids, yeah. Right. You know, other people's kids. Right. Right. I mean, PTA is a vehicle for connection to the school community. Mm -hmm. If there aren't other vehicles, if there aren't other ways, you think like, okay, I want to like go and meet other parents at the school. Where am I going to do it? Probably PTA. And now you're like, you've, you've, you're bringing all the baggage of PTA along, along with it. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. That, you know, there's so much opportunity there to reimagine what a school day looks like and what (laughs) these organizations that are just, we are taken for granted things that we do, right. The the part Mm -hmm. of the grammar of schooling, right. That we do. Mm -hmm. I think that gives us opportunity to rethink some things and how they fit around a a generation of women that are breadwinners, right? Right. Like a lot of these policies were structured around women being stay-at-home moms. So much of this is about a a generation changing much faster than I think education policy can uh, keep up with, right? Mm, Yeah. It seems like in, in a lot of your research, the the ease with which in the school context white parents build bonding social capital 
that that just sort of happens almost without a whole lot of effort, that it's really easy. And that the kind of work is in bridging social capital. And I'm wondering if you notice a difference outside of the school context or outside of institutional context. My initial thought when I was reading that was, I totally see that happening in school and like out in the like rest of the world, it feels like the opposite. Like I see like the ability of, of black people to make bonds with each other, even when they don't know each other, feels mm-hmm. like it happens much easier than it does for white people yeah. outside <laughs> yeah, of the context that's, of, that is, Yeah, that's a great, that's such an interesting observation. Like I, that would be a cool paper. <laughs> Just investigate. I mean, there are sociologists doing work on, right, like racial differences in social capital and networks, right? And um, I think it's fascinating to think about it among different institutions. Like, I I think one thing that I've seen is that, like, Black parents uh, have not needed the school for relationships in the same way that white parents have. Yes, ma'am. That is so. (laughs) So when you think about the mobility that white families have, they're often moving mm-hmm. away from like where they grew up. Like, you know, like that part of that employment discrimination means that black folks are not getting jobs in the same mm-hmm. way across the country. Right. And so black families are much more likely to be in proximity with family, perhaps with church communities and other social or community contexts in which they don't need any new friends. Right. But like, I think white moms are going into new communities or like they're relying on the schools to provide their social relationships for a lot of parts of their life. Right. Like they're relying on those social relationships for much more than I think black parents typically do. And again, this is my experience as a parent. Um, Certainly my experience. Yeah. So, and, and I'm a black parent, but I've moved a lot. And so uh I can totally understand both, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm new to the city. I, where else am I supposed to meet people? I work at home. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I meet people via podcast, thanks, or <laughs> people um, through school or kid activities. So I totally yeah, see that being a possibility. Definitely think it's a race and a class to process too, right? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier how it's been harder to engage working class Black parents in organizations like the PAC. And I, I do think that that mobility among Black middle class families has oriented us a little bit more t- toward drawing on the school as part of our network. One, because we know it's advantageous to do, right? It's like a hidden curriculum for parents, right? <laughs> of what you need to do when you go into a new school that I don't think is that information isn't distributed evenly. But also, I think there are some racialized components to that as well, where Black families are generally closer to home. Yeah. Right. And for sure. Or their neighborhoods where they grew up. Right. And in some ways may know the families in some contexts may not like some of the families at schools. Right. May have this history. Right. So I think, you know, school and the relationships at school Andrew, you mentioned earlier, Black being harmed at school. Right. Mm -hmm. Having traumatic experiences at school pushing black families out of school and like, I only want to deal with y'all when I have to, right. you know? Correct. Um, yeah, that, that's, the, <laughs> so, that's the other piece I think too, is like, it, it's easy. It's easy as a white person to walk into a school and assume that, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be net positive, that I can make friends, that my, that my arrival is welcomed. I mean, particularly as a white man, mm-hmm. the fact that I'm showing up in a school is like, I get an award just for that, right? I get yeah. a trophy. And there is this sort of mm-hmm. assumption that, that it's going to be a space that is kind of welcoming and, inclusive and 
and grateful for my presence that yep. is that is different, I'm sure. Whereas when a black woman comes into the school, everybody assumes there's a problem. Right. Yep. Why are you here? Skepticism, right? Like, well, yep. what did I do? As soon as I go up to, t- to school to talk to my kids' teachers, and, uh, you know, especially in this all-white context that we're in now, it's defensive. That's <laughs> right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, let me tell you all why this was, none of this was my fault. Right. I'm, like, I'm just coming to volunteer. You that's, know? It. that's it. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Just coming to say hey. That's it. That's it. That's but, it. you know, I, I even observed this even with PAC organizations trying to form. They got a lot of resistance from principals for that, right? Like, yeah. hmm, a group of black women coming together. I don't like that, mm. right? So they got a lot of pushback from that. They're still getting pushback from the from the school board, from the the state PTA itself. Is giving them some uh, friction around, like, hmm, can you do this, right? Like, people have so much skepticism about black folks organizing, right? Yeah, this is uh, fantastic. <laughs> it's so it's so great. Um, this is yeah. I'm, I'm honored to be in this conversation. It's so great. We've had so many amazing Black women guests on this podcast. Yeah, we have. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and every one of them has some story about their mom. And <laughs> what what role their yeah. mom played in yes. getting them there. Mm-hmm. And it's like worth just pausing for a moment to think about the two of you as Black moms and the role, mm-hmm. the like the ways that you mm-hmm. are shaping and advocating your kid's life. So I think mm. um, I can't imagine mm-hmm. that it is ever easy. And yet I think you are building up your little, I mean, uh, yeah, four kids is a lot of, a lot of kids yeah. to build up. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dr. Murray, that's, a, that's a lot. A lot of kids to watch out for. A lot of, lot of kids to watch yeah. out for, but it's, uh, it's important work. It is. Yeah. I'm just really grateful to you for coming on and sharing your brilliance. And- yeah. It's so much. I have taken so much from this and I appreciate you doing that and inspiring me to keep wow. going. Well, this was really a lot of fun, and I, I just thank y'all for having me. I've been, I'm like, oh man, my work is so relevant to this. I want to get on this show, so I'm appreciative oh, of, of Chantal putting me on. Oh, and, yeah. and this has been, you know, surpassed my expectations. So I enjoy talking to you both. This has been so much yeah. fun. It's been yeah. a joy. Thank you. So Val, what did you think? Well, I need to give you credit for finding Brittany's research and booking her onto this episode. No, it was Chantal Haley. Oh, that's right. Remember, Dr. Haley's the one who who was like, you know who you really need to talk to. And well, I'm <laughs> taking right. away your credit yeah. and giving it back to the black woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. Well deserved. Because her research, you know, it, it's, it's changed me since we've had that conversation. Yeah. And I think it's really made me consider the ways in which I want to get involved, how I want to get involved. And I actually see a path from Brittany's conversation of involvement that happens after my kids graduate Mm. or leave a school, right? So say my hope and dream is to have a a caregiver organization for educational justice at school, right? That's Mm -hmm. my alternative to the PTA. I can see being involved in that well after my kids graduate and it becomes for the benefit of all kids for educational justice. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's really important because too often once a child leaves school, you do become disconnected from that because it is about your individual child. Mm -hmm. But we know that here we're committed to all children. And I think she's just given me new ways to think about the possibility of that. 
Mm. Yeah, I love that because, right, I think there's kind of one degree removed from just my kid. It's like, let me think about all the kids in the school. But I think there is this this kind of one step removed from that even of like, you know, our society is a better place. Like our country is a better place. We have the potential to actually continue to shape and, and be impactful in the lives of students and of parents and of families going forward by continuing to be engaged in these ways that that maybe don't look like, I mean, yeah, there's nobody on the PTA who's not you know, a parent or maybe a grandparent in the school. Right. Like, what does it look like to have an organization? What does it look like to have a, a structure, or, you know, and, and kind of how formal does that need to be that is the community coming together to invest in the school? Right. I left the episode feeling really hopeful, despite the fact that some of the things she's shared were very tough to hear, yeah. right? And I wanted to talk a little bit about the system that is in place that requires PTAs to do this work of hoarding resources, essentially, mm. right? Because we haven't funded our schools in a way that we can we can worry about other things. Right? Right. PTAs have to be concerned about getting the funding so that their kids can have these experiences. Yeah, that part to me was really fascinating because in my mind, and I don't I don't know like how accurate this even is, but certainly the, my understanding of what a PTA was from growing up was very much around kind of extras about, you know, mm-hmm. are there T-shirts? Maybe there's like cool water bottles or, mm-hmm. you know, field day has some parents to help support. And I'm sure there were other things that were going on with the PTA. But the the difference between then and now in terms of the funding piece of it was totally shocking to me when I when I learned about it, yeah. that the PTA fundraising is filling a gap. And it's a it's a meaningful, real, important gap between yeah. what we should be giving kids and what we were actually giving kids, between yeah. what money we have to invest in schools and what money we should have to invest in schools. And so the need that PTAs are filling is real. Yeah. We need more money in schools. We need more funding. I just learned recently of a PTA that was raising funds to send teachers to professional development, right? So mm. you, you're right. right. Like right. this huge need. Yeah. And so the system has kind of created this need because we don't fund our education adequately. Now there's a need for funding. And and we know that the ability to engage in that is not determined by how much you care, is not determined right. by how invested you are in your kid's education, is not determined by how much value you place on education as an institution, but is determined by these larger societal factors that are, you know, mm. that are based in race around how much generational wealth do you have, around mm. what type of work do you do? Are there two caregivers involved? Do both of them have to work? What kinds of jobs mm-hmm. do they have to work? When do they have availability? What mm-hmm. sorts of resources can you pour into a school? And so, you know, the, on the one hand, it's like mm. totally understandable and and in many ways, admirable that folks want to show up and pour resources into a public school and pour their you know time and energy into it. And yet the system is set up such that that ends up creating these hierarchies, this sort of you know yeah. hierarchy of value of which not only which specific parents are more or less valuable to a school, but like what type of parent engagement is more or less valuable to a school. And I'm thinking about administrators feeling the need to then privilege those parents because they know they are a valuable asset to getting funds to the schools. Right. And that feels so vicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, like a really vicious cycle that I hope folks who are active in their PTAs do take a moment to like listen to this this episode and reflect on whether their PTA is acting in that way mm-hmm. and how to kind of break that cycle, you know, what that might look like. And it might 
look like advocating for more funding, right? It might look like letting the administration know we're able to do this, but this doesn't mean that you privilege our kids in everything that we do. Like we have the ability to raise funds and this is for every kid, not just my kid, right? right? Saying that explicitly, I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's so it's so tricky and I definitely have not figured out what the how to how to find the balance of that. I was super involved in the PTA in the very beginning of, of elementary school. And, you know, PTA was quite small at that time. We, like, eventually raised $2,500 and bought the teachers a laminating machine. That's you know, what's up. So that all that all felt fine. And then as the, the school attracted wealthier and whiter parents, the PTA grew in, in, in numbers and mm-hmm. in, in fundraising ability. And, you know, on the one hand, like, the school still has not nearly enough money, right? Like we still are making really hard choices between, you know, mental health supports and an additional teacher and paraprofessionals and all these things that we should not be having to make choices about. And PTA funding that's showing up makes a real tangible difference in the lives of the kids in this school. And, And so on the one hand, like that's, that feels really important. And at, you know, at what cost and at what cost to the parent and community at the school and at what cost more broadly where the, the parents who are outraged, rightfully so, that the school doesn't have the resources it needs, are able to fundraise and fill those gaps rather than marching downtown. I mean, we talked mm-hmm. about this with Heather McGee a little bit, like, you know, that I can I can go out and help fundraise and then my kid this year will have another field trip or will have another right. mental health professional in the building. I can go downtown to the Capitol and I can advocate. I can call my senators. I can advocate for more school funding. And if that is effective at some point, which, you know, who knows if that ever is, it's a it's right. five years down the road. It's 10 years down the road. Like, right. I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I still feel really stuck on how to how to balance that. Okay, so how do we advocate for systems where our resources don't leave, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when... The kids leave because the truth is, if the white parents who are now interested become disinterested, we're back at a place where we're working really hard to raise $2,500 right. for a lemonade machine or, you know, right. whatever that is. And so I don't, I don't have the answer either because um, obviously... I have followed the same path, right? Like my kids were involved in the school, then right. you know, now I'm involved in the next one. And and I'm still deeply committed to justice in our schools. And so how do we how do we sustain that for people who who care, like us, who will care right. long after our children leave those spaces? Yeah, I mean I think, you know, p- part of it is what does it look like to meaningfully advocate for yeah. better school funding? Yeah. Because it's one thing to say, like, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in more school funding and I'm gonna like vote in favor of that ballot initiative if it ever comes up. But in the meantime, right. I'm going to raise $80,000 for my kid's school. Right. I don't know. Because, I mean, like, I, I feel this tension now because the elementary school where my youngest is, it, it still desperately needs more money and now has meaningfully more money, certainly from parent fundraising, than two of the schools that are within a mile of it. Mm. And so, and they, they their needs are even greater than our needs. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, too, about if we remove this idea where we have to rely on parents to raise the funds, it requires administrators and teachers to learn different ways of interacting with caregivers Mm. in terms of engagement, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that'll that'll be a good thing where yeah. it will feel more like a partnership in many ways. <laughs> We're talking about it. And there's still so many questions that I'm left with and so many things that I'm wondering about. I um I will confess that I have not joined my kids PTA this year. And I think a lot of it was because of <laughs> the conversation mm-hmm. with Brittany. And I've been trying to figure out ways to support them at their new schools. It's really important for caregivers to positively contribute to the school. And I, you know, I'm thinking about what Brittany said in terms of we've we've assumed it's a universal good to have parents involved, right? Mm-hmm. That has been the assumption. And we are by no means saying like, stop being involved in your kid's school. So if I am modeling a bad idea by not being a <laughs> member of PTA right now, forgive me. We're we're transitioning. But what I also want to emphasize is what's connected to what Brittany said in terms of civic engagement. So as parents, as caregivers, we can model additional ways to be engaged. And so if our children see us being at every caregiver thing that we can make at school and advocating and talking about like the importance of funding to our neighbors, like all of those things count. And so, um, not only modeling, hey, I have free time as a suburban non-working parent with means right. to, you know, come and hang out at the school. There's there's other ways that we can show our children that we value them, their education and their school and yeah. uh, keeping that in mind. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that because I think I think it's easy to get lost in the the fundraising piece of PTA. And I know mm-hmm. schools where that's the only thing that they view as their job is to mm. raise funds. And no question, we need more funding in schools. But I think we don't only need more funding in schools. What sort of community engagement, what sort of community involvement is participating in the school, is showing up in the school, is supporting the school, is, mm-hmm. is a really important factor in, in every school. And so mm-hmm. thinking about ways Maybe it's showing up at the PTA and trying to nudge the PTA towards a vision of community engagement is is one way to show up. But I think another way to show up is what does it mean to become a part of the community? You know, the privileges that you bring to the community are sometimes financial, but are also your unique perspective. Yeah. And so what are the vehicles to like harness your unique perspective? What are the ways to show up and say, okay, here's here's what I'm bringing to the table from my standpoint, from my experiences, and how do we use that to help you know, shape the type of education that all the kids in the school are getting. Mm. That has nothing to do with resources, but it's still like a really important role mm-hmm. that parents should play. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. what does the school look like? How is the school welcoming or or accommodating of that is another question. But but that feels like a, you know, a different way to be an involved yeah. parent. Like Dr. Murray's mom was, you know, show up and and advocate and and be there. It does not necessarily look like running a bake sale. Right. I'm thinking about just the shift that type of thinking also requires for for administrators and teachers. Mm -hmm. And those folks also being able to recognize the different assets that families bring when they cannot fundraise or support financially, right? All of that will require a shift. And I think the Caregiver Organization for Educational Justice is where we start. (laughs) It started right (laughs) Right. here. It started right here. Yeah. (laughs) Start one at your school. (laughs) 
I think that's right because, you know, we talked about this sort of Oakdale, her like case study of a school that had high bridging and high bonding social capital is doing better work at least than 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 schools that have one or the other or neither. Mm-hmm. And this idea of needing to have bridges, needing to have wide-ranging, loose ties, but then also have bonding connections where people feel invested and feel like they're, you know, they're bought into the school and that they have a voice. That all makes sense to me. And mm-hmm. I just think about how overworked and and like often underappreciated teachers and school administrators are. Yeah. This feels like something that requires intentionality and thought and planning. Yeah. And to put that on their plate as well feels really hard when it's like yeah, I would love to do that. And I need enough money to have Correct. another counselor in the building. Correct. What am I going to focus on? Ugh. Yeah, Brittany. <laughs> Dr. Murray, you got us. You got yeah. us thinking. Um, we appreciate you. Yeah, it was a yeah a great conversation. Certainly has, has stuck with me, left me with lots of ideas and, and not a lot of answers, as, yeah. as is often the case. So if you were hoping to get to this point of the episode and hear all of the answers, you've come to the wrong place. But uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean we don't have some suggestions about action steps you can take. So Val, as we are doing this season, what are you thinking for action steps coming out of this conversation? Um, definitely think about how you're showing up as a parent. So if it's in a traditional PTA, what are some ways to make sure that it's not about how many resources you can get for the sake of courting, moving past just uh, what works for your kid to how can we have conversations about how we can support all children? I do think it is possible to transform PTAs in a relatively quick amount of time. And I say that because I think right now it's driven primarily by the status quo or what has been done. Mm-hmm. And you only need a handful of parents to say, like, we're going to we're going to do this differently. We're going to try this right. differently. And because of the, the nature of kids growing out of schools, right, there's lots of turnover. So there's lots of chances for things to be new again and uh, not being afraid of that. Yeah. I'm thinking about how I show up now in this new school as well as continue to show up in my old school. I'm thinking about what other ways are there to show up. I, yeah. Conversation I had with a, a black mother about PTA at our elementary school where she was just like, oh, that like that's not for me. Mm. That's not a space for me. Mm. And so, you know, maybe it is your your parents organizing for racial justice or, yes. you know, whatever, whatever it is, Forge. <laughs> no, no, it's not going nope, to need a new acronym. But, yep, um, you know, like like what what else? What are the other options that don't carry the baggage of PTA with them to right. say, here's a chance to get involved in this thing that that we know we all believe in, which is that we want our kids to thrive. And we believe that if parents have a voice in that, that's more likely to happen. Yeah. What sort of structures exist? Yeah. So would encourage listeners to figure some way to get involved in your school community. And call uh, us and tell us how you're doing. We love right. the voice memos. Send us your voice memos. Mm-hmm. Find that voice memos app, record us a little message and send it out. Podcast at integratedschools.org. And yeah, we'd love to hear how you're grappling with this question of PTA so white. In the meantime, take this episode, play it at your PTA, have a discussion about it. Really dig in. You are the change that you seek. That's right. And uh, also, be the change that we seek by... Giving us some change. By giving us some change (laughs) over on Patreon with a small monthly donation that helps keep this podcast going. We'd be grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash integrated schools. Awesome. 
Well, Val, I'm not exactly sure what the answer to PTA is, but I'm grateful that I get to keep thinking about it with you and grateful to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. Until next time. Little lies. You guys watch that? See that. Is that a white? That must be a white thing. That's definitely a white thing. Yep. Yep.